ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Teotomi Hideyoshi was a samurai. And is this not on? Is it on? It says it is. I don't know. Say that again. You got it? Okay, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to talk loud. How's that? Uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi was a samurai and feudal warlord in Japan in the late 1500s. And toward the end of his life, he commissioned the construction of a massive statue of Buddha to be housed in a temple in the city of Kyoto. Well, the construction began in 1588 and took about five years to complete, and an estimated 50,000 laborers were used in the completion of the project. But shortly after the project was completed in 1596, both the statue and the shrine were destroyed by an earthquake. And according to legend, Hideyoshi fired an arrow at the destroyed edifice and yelled out in rage, I put you here at great expense, and you can't even look after your own temple. Well, as things progressed in 1598, they decided to rebuild the Buddha and his shrine. And as the construction progressed in 1602, a fire broke out and once again destroyed the shrine and the Buddha. So in 1610, they started over. But this time, they decided to make the Buddha out of bronze instead of wood like the previous two. But once you know it, in 1662, another earthquake hits and again destroys the Buddha and his temple. Well, it was rebuilt. But a little over 100 years after that, in 1798, a lightning strike hit the place and burned everything to the ground. The latest catastrophe occurred as late as about 50 years ago in 1973, when again the edifice was destroyed by a fire. Now you would think that by this time, if you were living in Japan, you'd kind of get the idea that maybe putting your faith in Buddha is a little bit of a sketchy proposition. But even today, Buddhism is one of the two major religions in the country of Japan, along with Shintoism. Well, long before the calamities that befell Hideyoshi's Buddha took place, the ancient Philistines uh, experienced something very similar in regard to their god, Dagon. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5 and stand with me, if you would, as we read the text. And this is the account of what happens when the Philistines capture the Ark of God beginning in chapter 5 of 1 Samuel and verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, brought it into the temple of Dagon, and placed it next to his statue. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and returned him to his place. But when they got up early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, 
This time, Dagon's head and both of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso remained. That is why still today the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple of Dagon in Ashdod do not step on Dagon's threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. He terrified the people of Ashdod and its territory and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of Israel's God must not stay here with us because his hand is strongly against us and our God Dagon. So they called all the Philistine rulers together and asked, What should we do with the ark of Israel's God? The ark of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, they replied. So they moved the ark of Israel's God. And after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath, causing a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. The people of Gath then sent the ark of God to Ekron, but when it got there, the Ekronites cried out, they've moved the ark of Israel's God to us to kill us and our people. The Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers together, and they said, send the ark of Israel's God away. Let it return to its place so it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city. God's hand was oppressing them. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Chapter 6 and verse 1, When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines summoned the priests and the diviners and pleaded, What should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we can send it back to its place. The grass withers and the flowers fall. can be seated. The last time we were in 1 Samuel, I went back and looked, it was back in May, so when you do a little mini-series like this, uh, it's a little disconnected when you only get to stand up here about once every five or six months or something like that, so I thought it might be good to just remind you to refresh your memory, those of you that were here, of what we covered in the last two sermons. And if you'll remember, if you just glance back to chapter 4, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle, and they were, it says in chapter 4 and verse 1, that they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped at Aphek, and they lined up in battle formation, but the Israelites were defeated, and they lost about 3,000 men, or 4,000 men, on the battlefield. So someone gets the idea that uh, it would be a good plan to go and get the Ark of God from the place in Shiloh where it had been for the last 350 years or so and bring it to the battle, bring it into the battlefront. And no doubt they uh, remembered the account of when the Ark was used as they marched around the city of Jericho and they won a great victory at Jericho. And they decided, hey, it worked in the past, let's try it again. Well... As many times happens, things that look good on paper don't always work out so well in the real world, and the result could not have been more devastating for Israel. Uh, The ark was captured by the Philistines. Instead of 4,000 casualties, there's 30,000 casualties. Eli and his two wicked sons are dead, and Eli's daughter-in-law gives or dies during childbirth 
And chapter 4 ends with these anguished words from the daughter-in-law of Eli. It's recorded in verse 21 as she gives birth. Uh, She names the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. Now, as we come to chapter 5, what we find is that uh, we now see things from the Philistines' point of view. Uh, Up until this point, we've seen things from Israel's point of view. And Israel totally missed it. They didn't really understand. Of all people, Israel should have understood the purpose of the ark. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 21 and 22, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, telling him, Set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. I will meet you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I am commanding you regarding the Israelites. But you see, instead of seeing the ark as the meeting place with God, instead of seeing the ark as the place where the mercy seat provided atonement as the priest sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, Instead of seeing the ark as something that should have reminded them that they served an infinitely glorious and holy God, in their minds, apparently, their thinking had degenerated to the point where they just saw the ark as kind of a good luck charm. Or as Ralph Davis, or Dale Ralph Davis has termed it, they had fallen into rabbit's foot theology. They saw the ark as nothing but a lucky rabbit's foot. So Israel had forgotten the purpose of the ark, and the Philistines are about to learn something about the ark. And so as we come to chapter 5, we find that the Philistines have captured the ark, and they bring it to their god Dagon. And Dagon is about to be humiliated. Now, who was Dagon? Well, from what we can gather, Dagon was probably a god of fertility. He was associated with uh, agriculture and grain harvest and that sort of thing. Uh, Some of the images and pictures we have of Dagon picture him as a man from basically the waist up and then having a fish's tail from the waist down. So he was kind of like a mermaid, only he would have been a merman instead of a mermaid. And so Dagon was likely their chief deity. The first time we read about Dagon is in the book of Judges in chapter 16, the account of Samson. And uh, Samson, if you remember the story, uh, after he gave away the secret to his strength and was captured by the Philistines, they put his eyes out and they put him to work. And on a particular day, they had a great celebration in their temple of Dagon, and they decided to bring Samson in to entertain them. And Samson asked to be placed between the two pillars of the temple. And with His final prayer, he asked God to give him his strength back, and he breaks the pillars of the temple, and the temple comes crashing down, and some 3,000 people are killed of the Philistines on that day. We also read in 1 Chronicles 10, and this would have been later after the account here in 1 Samuel 5, 
that when Saul was uh, found slain on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines, when they discovered his body after he died on Mount Gilboa, that they took Saul and they put his head into Dagon's temple. So this was their way of showing their victory over Israel by putting the head of their king in the temple of their god Dagon. So why would they have put the ark in Dagon's temple? What would have been the purpose of that? Well, it's very possible that they did it for much the same reason that they later on uh, put uh, Saul's head in the temple of Dagon to show their victory. To It was kind of a spoil of war. We've captured the ark. We're going to put it in here to show it off. And we're going to let everyone know that Dagon has defeated the God of Israel. That very well could have been the reason, or at least part of the reason. Uh, we don't really know. The, word, or the text doesn't tell us. But there's another possibility as well. The Philistines were polytheistic. Uh, we know that uh, from passages like 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Kings chapter 1. They were polytheistic and they worshipped the Ashtaroths and the god Beelzebub. And so it's very possible that they may have decided to bring Israel's god into their temple and just add him to their pantheon of deities, uh, add him to their collection, so to speak. Uh, if you look back at chapter 4, and uh, beginning in verse 6, we're told that the Philistines heard the sound of the war cry, and this was when they brought the ark into the camp of Israel. And they said, what's this loud shout in the, Philistine, or in the Hebrews' camp? And when the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A god has entered their camp, they said, woe to us. Nothing like this has happened to us before. Woe to us. Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. So they knew something about the history of Israel's God. Now, they can't, doesn't seem like they can quite figure out if it's God or gods because initially they say a God has come into the camp, but then they kind of go back to their default understanding of theology and they go back to the fact that these are the Israelite gods, plural. Uh, so they may have just wanted to add Yahweh to their pantheon of deities to give them a little more power, a little more strength. You know, after all, who can have too many gods? You know, they just one more is just got to make things better. Uh, that may have been their thinking. But regardless of their reasons, uh, they go about their business. Um, after they put our, you know, the ark in Dagon's temple, they go about their daily business, they go to bed, they get up the next morning, they eat their Cheerios, and they go down to Dagon's temple either to gloat over the ark that is now enshrined there or possibly to perform some daily worship ritual. And lo and behold, what do they find? Dagon is lying face down in front of the ark. Now... You can only imagine and speculate as to what might have gone through their minds, but think about that. They go down there, and here's Dagon face down in front of the ark that they had put in and set beside Dagon. And I can just imagine them saying, what in the world? Was there an earthquake last night? We slept through it? Uh, 
well, you know what? Maybe, I mean, who knows, but maybe this was some clandestine uh, act of some Israelite special forces and they came in during the night. But if that was the case, why would they leave the ark? Surely they would have retrieved the ark. So that doesn't seem to make sense either. And, I, and we don't know what they thought. We could speculate all day long. But whatever the case, they decide, well, let's put Dagon back in his place. He fell down for some reason. Maybe we don't know why, but we'll set him back in his place. Well, think about that for a moment. Here is their God, and he can't even get back up on his own two feet. they got to put him back in his place. Now, here's a clue, okay? If your concept of God is such that he needs assistance from you and I to stand his ground, you're worshiping a false god. Paul, in speaking to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, said, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life and breath, gives everyone life and breath and all things. The one true God doesn't need help from you and I. And the Philistines are about to learn that in a powerful way. So they put Dagon back in his place, and the next morning they get up, and woe and lo and behold, what's happened now? Dagon has fallen again, but this time his head is broken off and his hands are broken off. And oh, by the way, they're not just scattered randomly as if it had fallen over and just shattered and like when you and I drop a dish or a plate and pieces go everywhere. No, his head and his hands are lying right on the threshold to the entrance of the temple. They've been placed there by somebody, right? Now, the fact that his head was broken off and his hands were broken off is clearly the design of utter defeat. He can't think and he can't act. His head don't work and his hands don't work. Dagon is helpless. And so they find his head and his hands lying on the temple or on the entrance to the temple. And now what are they thinking? Well, you would think that they would start to get the message, right? Well, I've entitled my sermon, The Dagon Factor. You want to know what the Dagon Factor is? The Dagon Factor is found in Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. That's the Dagon Factor, and they're about to learn it, okay? Zephaniah 2.11, this is long after uh, says the Lord will be terrifying to them for he will starve all the gods of the earth and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. The Dagon factor is simply this. God will not give his glory to another. He will not share his glory with another. He will not allow his glory to be equaled with another. And in the end, all other gods will be broken and be their followers will be broken along with them. Amen. And at the end of the day, every God will bow to the Yahweh of Israel. Right. Now, do the Philistines get the message? That's the message they should have got. I mean, that seems to be the obvious message here, right? 
They didn't, still didn't get it. Doesn't seem like, because what do they do? Well, they say, oh my goodness. We better not ever step on the threshold again. What? Really? That's all you get out of that? His hands and his head are laying on the threshold. And instead of trying to figure out, put two to two, two and two together and figure out what's going on here, they just come up with another superstitious practice. Well, let's don't ever step on the threshold because, you know, it's probably sacred now. With Dagon's head and hands lying on it, it probably made that threshold sacred. So we, let's be careful. Let's don't step on that. We, you and I look at that and we shake our heads, right? But that's what they, that's the conclusion they came to. That's what happens, by the way, when people reject and ignore revealed truth. They just become stupid. G.K. Chesterton once said, when men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing they then become capable of believing in anything. That's the truth. You reject the God of Scripture, and you will believe in anything. But regardless of what they did, that doesn't change the facts, does it? God will not share his glory with another. He will not give his glory to another. The Dagon factor is still standing regardless of how they respond. Now, in Zephaniah 1 and chapter 9, we read, On that day, this is the Lord speaking, On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold. Isn't that interesting? And so, these are the people that fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. So, Dagon is humiliated, but it doesn't stop there. Because the judgment of God for their actions doesn't simply extend to their God. It extends to the people. And the Lord's hand is heavy against the people. You see, Dagon's hands are cut off, but not the Lord's hands. His hand is heavy upon Dagon and his followers. We read that he terrified, in verse 6 is my translation, he terrified the people of Ashdod. Scared them to death. They still didn't respond appropriately, but he scared the people of Ashdod to death. Uh, In the Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, there's an additional couple of phrases in there that we don't have in our Bible. Uh, And so in the Septuagint, it says, it adds these words, he brought mice up against them. And they swarmed in their ships. Then mice went up into the land, and there was a mortal panic in the city. If you look over at chapter 6, verse 5, it seems to confirm that whole uh, scenario because in chapter 6, verse 5, when they finally consult their religious leaders and they're trying to figure out how in the world we're going to get rid of this ark, the religious leaders tell them to make images of your tumors. Okay? and of your mice that are destroying the land. So apparently there were mice and tumors both that were involved in this plague that had struck the Philistines. And so here we have the Philistines being struck by the hand of the Lord. Many people believe that, uh, or many Bible scholars believe this was an outbreak of bubonic plague because bubonic plague, and I'm no medical person, but apparently causes uh, large lumps to grow in areas of your uh, 
lymph nodes, thank you, couldn't, couldn't think of the term. Uh, but whatever the case, they were severely afflicted. They got sick. This was a pandemic of pandemic proportions that they were dealing with. And so it didn't take them too long to make the connection between the ark and their affliction and the plague. And they said, look, after the fiasco in Dagon's temple, after this tumor pandemic, we've had enough. we got to get this thing out of here. And so they call a meeting, right? And they call a meeting of the um, Philistine Security Council, and they say, what in the world are we going to do with Dagon's God? Well, here's the lesson they should have been learning. We're going to look at what they decide to do, which, again, is questionable as to why they did it. But what is the lesson they should have been learning here all along? They should have been learning, and I think at some level they were learning, that Israel's God was not some user-friendly, domesticated God like they thought he should have been. In his book, uh, Dangerous God, author Jim Albright says this, For indeed the God who is, the biblical God, has revealed himself to be the most dangerous being in the cosmos for all who would make themselves his enemy. That's true. And the Philistines were learning that. Now, whether they had set up a contest intentionally or unintentionally, they had set up a contest between Dagon and Yahweh. And so when they call their council together to address this item of what in the world to do with Israel's God, text doesn't tell us why. We don't have any clue as to what their thinking process was, but they decide, you know what, it should be sent to Gath. I don't know why. Maybe the people of Gath were like, yeah, bring it on. We can handle this. You folks in Ashdod, you're wimps. We can take care of this. I don't know. Maybe they thought because Ashdod was on the coast and there were mice coming in on the ships, maybe they assumed that if they moved the ark inland and get it away from the coast, maybe that would help. I don't know. We're not told. But we do know that when they bring the ark to Philist or to Gath, it doesn't solve the problem. Things only get worse. When they bring the ark to Gath, the pandemic spreads to this same town, just like it did in Ashdod. And verse 9 of chapter 5 says that uh, from the youngest to the oldest, virtually everybody in the city was affected by this thing. And so God's hand again was against the city of Gath, caused a great panic. He afflicted everybody with an outbreak of tumors. And so the Philistines are taken aback once again, set back on their heels. You see, there's a real lesson for us here, I think, and that is that wrong concepts of God can be deadly. The Philistines probably assumed that Israel's God wasn't all that much different from their God, Dagon, but oh, how wrong they were. Because they bring the ark to Gath and the pandemic spreads to Gath. People are dying. People are crying out in terror and in fear and in horror. 
And again, the Lord's hand is heavy against the city. The people of Gath had no clue. The people of Ashdod had no clue. The Philistines in general had no clue who they were dealing with and what he was like. Steve Lawson says, who you believe God to be, what he is like, is the single most important factor in your life. Now think about that. Who you believe God to be and what he's like, how he functions, that's the single most important factor of your life. Because if you get that wrong, you get everything wrong in life and in eternity. And the Philistines had opportunity. They could have gone to Israel and said, tell us about this God. He's kicking our rear end. I mean, we're just, I mean, we're just beat down by this God. They don't do that. So the people of Gath, they're in a panic, and they're like, <laughs> you know, we, we got to get rid of this thing too. And so it's interesting to me that in Ashdod, they actually called a meeting. They had a council meeting, and they come up with this conclusion, well, let's send it to, to Gath. Uh, we don't read of that at Gath. Now, they might have had a meeting. We don't know that, but it doesn't tell us. You just kind of get the impression that the people of Gath are like, we just want this thing gone. Get it out of here. It's killing us. And we don't read of there being any meeting or anything else. They just say, we got to get it out of here. And so what do they do? They pack it up and they FedEx it overnight to Ekron. <laughs> and when it arrives at the Ekron shipping and receiving department, they just freak out. Oh, no. You sent this thing here to kill us. News traveled pretty fast even in those days, and they knew what had happened in Ashdod, and they knew what had happened in Gath, and so now they're in panic mode. Oh, no, the ark has come to kill us. What are we going to do? And so what do the Ekronites do? Look at verse 11. They called all the Philistine rulers together once again. So this is the second meeting of the Philistine Emergency Council and Security Council meeting, and they're like, look, at this point, we just need to take it back. We need to send it back to Israel. We've, we've had enough. Can't deal with it anymore. Just send it home. Get it out of here. You see, what the Philistines had initially thought was a cause for celebration had in reality become a curse. Have you ever had anything like that? You got something you thought you really wanted, and when you got it, you're like, you know what, that wasn't a very smart move. I think I didn't think that through clearly enough. Well, these folks obviously didn't think things through clearly enough, and they didn't learn the lessons along the way either. They just kept on in their own foolishness. So they just call another meeting. Well, the first meeting, that didn't end well. When they called the first meeting, the decision that came out of that meeting certainly didn't help matters. It only made things worse, but they called another meeting. And we're not really told the outcome of that meeting at the end of uh, chapter 5 there, but we do know that the fear of death had pervaded the city for God's hand was opposing them, we're told here. Now, those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven so the people in Ekron just like the people in Ashdod and Gath they're overwhelmed with horror and grief and the Lord's hand is heavy on them just as well as it was in the other places and they just want to get rid of the ark 
You know, what's interesting to me is that when you come to chapter 6, it says that the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory for seven months by this time. Now, that had to be a long seven months for these folks. And seven months into it, and we don't know at what point the second meeting at Ekron occurred with the rulers, but apparently they didn't really do anything about it at that point in time. And I don't know how much time elapsed from the end of chapter 5 to the first part of chapter 6, but in chapter 6, they call another meeting. But who's it with this time? It's not with the leaders. You know, your translation may say in, in five and in, in verse chapter five, verse eight, and chapter five, verse eleven, it might your translation might say the lords of the Philistines or the rulers of the Philistines. Here it's who? It's the priests and diviners. You see, in chapter five, verse eight, and chapter five, verse eleven, they're looking for a political solution. But now they get religion. This stuff is serious. And the political solution didn't help us, so now we get religious about it. But here's what's so interesting. What kind of religion did they turn to? It was a religion that was based on their default understanding of who God was and how he operates. They went right back to their concepts of Dagon, and they go to Dagon's religious experts, if you will, the priests and diviners, and they're looking back to get out from under God's heavy hand by looking to the God who has been defeated clearly by Israel's God. Instead of turning to Yahweh, instead of dialing up somebody in Israel and saying, hey, come over here and tell us how to deal with your God. No, no. We're going to figure it out through our religious experts. You see, here again, there's a great point, And please don't miss this. If you and I do not learn to trust the God of the Bible during good times, we will, by nature, default to a false God and our false understanding of God in the bad times. When times get tough, who you believe God to be comes to the forefront. How many times do people, when the going gets rough, revert to an understanding of God that is fatally flawed and absolutely unbiblical. That's what happened here. They had every opportunity to recognize that Yahweh was a God far superior to their gods. And yet what do they do? When the going really gets rough and when all the government solutions don't work and they decide to look for a spiritual solution, they go right back to the defeated God Dagon to get the solution to the problem. You know, there's something else here that I think is important. Turn with me to Psalm 115. This is the, the text that uh, Carl read this morning, but turn to Psalm chapter 115. We begin reading in, in verse 1. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. 
Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Notice that. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. They, are, they who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. You've heard the old saying, you are what you eat. The psalmist says you are who you worship. Dagon's followers became just as weak and impotent as Dagon was in the face of hardship and difficulty. And when faced with the true God, Dagon's followers had no more strength to overcome and to deal with the situation than Dagon did because they had become like their God. Here again, we need to think about this. Your concept of God could not be more critical to your spiritual life. Who God is is absolutely fundamental to our understanding of Scripture and our understanding of life in general. You see, the great thing about this, though, is it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, I find it interesting, by the way, let me just say this, I don't want to make too much of it, but the whole idea of God's glory, and I think we've, we've said this here in, in other lessons that we've covered in times gone by when we've talked about the glory of God, but, but the Hebrew word for God's glory carries this idea of heaviness. Well, if you look here, it's very interesting if you go back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, when Phineas's uh, wife said, the glory has departed from Israel, that's the same word as the Lord's, or the same root word as the Lord's hand was heavy against the Philistines because it carries this idea of heaviness. So the Philistines, when faced with the glory of God, found it to be a heavy thing in their lives. They found it to be something that was very oppressive and hard to get out from under. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way at all because in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we read, and this is Paul speaking to the believers at Corinth as new covenant believers. He says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So that glory of God cuts both ways. You have two choices, really, this morning, if you stop and think about it. You can be the kind of person that resists God's glory, and it becomes a heavy hand, and it will consume you, as it did the Philistines. But you can also be the kind of person who gazes at the glory of the Lord as a new covenant believer, and it will transform you. And the choice is really ours. Now, the Ark of the Covenant has long since disappeared from the pages of history. But the one to whom the Ark pointed has not. 
the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember its construction, the lid, and, we, and remember right at the beginning of the sermon, I read from Exodus, and it talked about the mercy seat on top of the Ark. The lid of the Ark was the mercy seat, and it was made out of gold. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 9. If you would just turn there briefly with me to Hebrews chapter 9. I'll just uh, begin reading in verse 1, I guess. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna. Aaron's staff that budded was included in there as well. So we have, it was covered with gold. It had a jar containing the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant in the Ark. And then notice verse 5. The cherubim of glory were above the Ark, overshadowing what the mercy seat the greek word there for mercy seat is the word hilasterion that's the exact same word if you turn back to romans chapter 3 romans chapter 3 And let's begin in verse 23. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the hilasterion. Your translation may say propitiation. It may say sacrifice of atonement or atoning sacrifice or something like that. Interestingly, the 2020 version of the Christian Standard Bible translates it this way. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood. Because it's the same word. The word used for mercy seat in Hebrew is the same word used here. You see, Israel and the Philistines totally missed the purpose of the mercy seat. The mercy seat pointed to the one who is the eternal mercy seat for you and I. And today we don't come with the blood of bulls and goats. We come in the confidence and assurance of the one who shed the perfect blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world on our behalf, and he becomes our mercy seat. And oh, what an important lesson that is. You see, we only have two choices today. Place all your confidence and hope and trust in the one who is the true mercy seat. Or you can place your confidence and your trust in human authority and human wisdom. But there's one other thing here. 
regardless of your choice, regardless of what you choose to do, whether you trust in the eternal mercy seat or you trust, trust in the wisdom of men, either way, there's coming a day when, like Dagon of old, you will find yourself prostrate, prostrate, excuse me, before the God of all eternity. Dagon fell face down before the Lord. I hear these people, my wife brought this up in Sunday school, these people that say, oh, when I see Jesus, I'm going to jump up in his arms and dance and hug and have a great, no, you won't. What happened to John on the Isle of Patmos? Now, you stop and think who John was. Remember the account in Revelation chapter 1 when John was on the Isle of Patmos and he saw the Lord? This was the Lord that he had walked with and talked with and fellowshiped with on this earth. And when he saw the Lord glorified, he did what? He fell on his feet as a dead man. When you and I see the Lord of glory, it ain't going to be a big party and high-fiving Jesus and all that Facebook theology and bumper sticker theology and all that nonsense you see and read about and sing about. It's going to be falling face down before the Lord of glory. And you and I have two choices. We can fall down willingly in our day and time and humbly acknowledge that he is the God of all eternity, superior to all other gods, the God who will not share his glory with another, will not give his glory to another, or we can fall one day in judgment. And the question is, which do you choose this morning? Will you fall before his feet? Will you fall before the mercy seat, the true mercy seat? Or will you resist like the Philistines did? Will you get callous and careless like the Israelites did and just see the cross as a good luck charm to wear around your neck? Or will you see that cross as the only hope that we have for eternity and forgiveness of sins? It's our choice. The question is, which will we do? Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that you have given us this lesson from the Old Testament, a glorious lesson, really, when we stop and think of its implications. But, Lord, we recognize that all too often we're prone to make the same foolish mistakes that Israel made and the same foolish mistakes that the Philistines made and to miss the truth and to miss the point and to build up idols in our minds of who you are and what you are like and to imagine you to be something and someone other than who you really are. Lord, forgive us of that idolatry and help us to focus our minds and our hearts on the truth of Scripture and on the glory of the God of Israel, who is our God as well. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.